Welcome to episode 109 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Jessica. She used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Jessica, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Today, we will feature a talk about dry drunk syndrome and some reflections about how it can apply even to us Elanons. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experience as they relate to the topic of dry drunk. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. A few weeks ago, Jennifer sent us an email suggesting this topic of dry drunk. And then Ruth mentioned how she feels when she misses a few meetings. And then after that, I heard a speaker talk about dry drunk on the Recovery Radio Network podcast. And so all of those came together and I thought, well, here's a way I can build an episode about dry drunk because, you know, I didn't think it was something that I had personally experienced and uh, found that maybe I was wrong. So let's start with a talk from Dick S. It's titled Recovery is Forever, Dry Drunk Revisited. One of the first things we alcoholics are told when our decision is made to stop drinking is that if we are going to maintain sobriety, we have to work at it. Sobriety can be forever, and it has been for many. We learn early, though, that it can and does have its rough spots. It is not always an easy path to follow. What follows is directed to alcoholics who are sober, but who are suffering time to time from a consuming discomfort known as dry drunk. The dry drunk syndrome manifests itself in attitudes and behavior not unlike what was exhibited during the active drinking periods. Many, including the alcoholic, believe that when drinking stopped, a state of normalcy would return. They thought that the difficult and troubled times that plagued them while drinking would disappear. But being sober, important as it is, does not ensure a life free of turmoil. There are times when the sober alcoholics Approaches to life are the same as when drinking. As alcoholism as an illness consumes the sufferer mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, so does the dry drunk. It contaminates the mind and emotions, and it affects body and spirit. It prevents one from experiencing the freedom that we sought when the decision was made to stop drinking. Living becomes constrained, and the good things hoped for in sobriety begin to recede into the background. Dry drunk is an important term to the alcoholic because at some point in recovery, a dry drunk may be experienced. For many, it will happen again and again, but for all, there is hope. The rough spots can be made smooth. 
The dry drunk is cunning. No one is immune. Length of sobriety, successful employment, or number of friends are not certain insulation against this dimension of the disease. Nor does being a therapist in a treatment center, referral center, or other agency that delivers service in the treatment of alcoholism necessarily protect you, and protection is needed. The dry drunk can become a relapse. I know it. It did for me. Staying sober is the work of a lifetime. You must learn a new way of handling life's problems, more particularly your feeling about those problems. This is a hard assignment, impossible for some, but it is the only protection against the dry drunk. It is important to remember that you relied for years on a friend to ease the pain of living. Again and again, that friend obliterated or gave respite from the burdensome problems of life. The relief, no matter how inappropriate or immature, was there. Creating new patterns for living takes patience. However, it can be done. You must be willing to go to any lengths to find and keep sobriety. The old cliché, this too will pass, must be remembered if you are to learn to cope effectively with discomfort. You can survive, and you will be strengthened for the next difficult period. It is difficult to describe a dry drunk and its repercussions in the exact order of the events. Nevertheless, I will attempt to do so. I will tell you my story in the hope that it will help you on the path to recovery. I drank again after almost 20 years of sobriety. It shocked some. It angered others. Still others felt disbelief. People asked, After 20 years, how can it happen? What follows may answer that question. It must never be forgotten that alcoholism is real. It does not go away regardless of the lengths of sobriety. And a dry drunk, experienced after a period of sobriety, always precedes the return to drinking. Initially, I acquired my sobriety by involving myself with AA. I attended my meetings religiously and discovered to my surprise that sobriety was something I wanted and AA gave it to me in full measure. It was truly a rebirth for me and all the significant people in my life. For the next ten years, nothing was more important than the ongoing involvement I had with AA and its people. I found fellowship and friendship such as I had never experienced before and my whole life was filled with the good things one hopes for. I was finally on my way out of the depths of despair where I had been longer than I could remember. A friend gave me a copy of the popular book, 24 Hours a Day, which I read daily. When I traveled, the book went with me. I became involved with others and their attempts for a sober life. I went back to my church, and I was comfortable in the churches of others. Community affairs interested me, too. 
I was a truly changed person. I was pleased, and so were others. After about six months of sobriety, I was asked to lead discussions once a week for those who were newer than myself in AA. Soon individuals began picking me out to assist them in ways helpful to their sobriety. In my second or third year, I began talking to local AA groups and community gatherings anxious to know about AA and sobriety. Before long, I was traveling outside the state speaking at AA functions and banquets. I rode high on the applause, the handshakes, the slaps on the back, which tended to elevate me in my eyes and in the eyes of others. I developed a feeling of importance, but I masked it well. Others thought I was gathering humility. Through this time, I did not neglect my AA meetings. On Monday nights, that's where I was. In my tenth year of sobriety, I accepted a job to work full-time in an alcoholism treatment center. It was not an easy decision to make. For ten years, I had worked for the same employer. I was trusted with everything he owned, and in turn, I trusted him. My personal life had been enriched, and my family life was blessed with everything I had been promised in the big book. It seemed somewhat risky to leave a job that had been good to me and venture into a field where the possibility of failure existed. I discussed it at length with family members, my employer, and many of my AA friends. Almost to a person they felt I should accept. They believed the challenge would be good and that I would find success. There were no training programs then. To learn, you read whatever had been written about alcoholism, which wasn't much. But I felt if I was going to learn anything at all, it would come from the books that were available and whatever I could pick up from the handful of staff people who were there when I came. After a few months, I was asked to fill in for a counselor, one of two on the staff. It has been said that the quickest way to learn to swim is to be thrown in the water. I managed to get through that sink-or-swim period, which included giving three lectures a day for a ten-day period. It might have been better for me if things hadn't gone as well as they did. With that experience behind me, I was given other assignments which led to greater involvement both within and outside the treatment center. It was a time for reflection on what had happened in my 13 years of sobriety. I was pleased and AA, my 24 hours a day book, church attendance, and other stakes I had driven were still very important to me. This was soon to change, however. My outside assignments increased, and I began to miss some of my AA meetings. I was gone many weekends to some distant city, so I missed church on Sunday. I convinced myself that what I was doing was for the good of the masses, so a missed AA meeting or church service could surely be overlooked and accepted by others. 
my personal con game had started. It was suggested by a good friend that I budget my outside time. The wise man knew very well I could not continue at the pace I was going without leaving something out somewhere along the way. How right he was. However, I was not conscious of where my pace was leading me. I was on an ego trip such as I had never been on before. And I liked what was happening. I was, to use the expression, falling uphill. Everything was coming up roses. There were minor physical problems, but I told myself, as I had told others, this too will pass, until one day I wound up in the hospital with a condition brought on by stress and fatigue. The doctor who knew me well told me as frankly as he could I had to back off or suffer the consequences. When I was released, he gave me a formula to follow if I wanted to prevent that disaster down the road. I ignored him and resumed my former schedule. My AA attendance became more and more sporadic. The 24 hours a day book had lost its importance. I read it when I had time. Things to be done at home had to be done by others. They must understand. I can't be all things to all people. It's only fair they pitch in and do their share, I thought. The family began to feel the pressure of my undisciplined life, and I recall it being said, one day you will fall flat on your face. What none of us realized was that much more of the same was still to come. Another challenge was offered. I was given an opportunity to open a treatment center in another city and to direct the entire operation. Mohammed had reached the mountaintop. Open house was held a few weeks after the treatment center opened. It was a Sunday in February with a wind chill temperature of 55 degrees below zero. Yet over 700 people came, and I am sure that I thought See what I have wrought. With the new center, there were more speeches, more banquets, more interviews with newspapers, radio and television. Luncheons with various organizations and clubs were arranged to describe the treatment center. I had early morning breakfast at the athletic club, and evenings were taken up with church and social groups. Within a matter of weeks, the center was full and had a waiting list. Management was pleased. Everything had gone beyond their fondest expectations. More beds indeed, double the patient population, and I raced merrily on. The world had become my oyster. AA was no longer in my schedule, and the 24 hours a day book had been put away. For the next two or three years, nothing really changed much. I had continued success at work, but AA, church, and 24-hour-a-day book remained unimportant. Then one day it happened. Sick and exhausted, I drank. It was to be just one drink, an experiment as it were. It worked. I took one and no more. Several days later, I did the same, taking again only one. 
It went on like this for months. Once in a great while, two drinks, but never any more. I was aware of the duplicity I was living. But what could I do? I rationalized why not. I still did my job and much more. No one was suffering or being hurt by my drinking. And if people wanted to continue getting the mileage out of me that I had been giving them, I was entitled to a little relief along the way. A physical condition developed that made it difficult for me to speak as often as I had been. Surgery was performed. My ability to talk improved. And soon I was flitting around as before. The drink or two from time to time continued. After seven or eight months, my voice was again affected. Surgery was required a second time, but this time was different. They discovered cancer. What had I done to deserve this? Now I had a built-in excuse to stay home whenever I felt like it. Doctor's orders. And no one could question that. And two, it gave me greater license to drink. If this was a reward I was to have for all that I had done, and if God didn't care, why should I? I continued to make my appearance at work, sometimes for all day sometimes for short periods, and sometimes just to show myself and leave again. The drinking increased, and I began to feel like a man sitting on death row awaiting his turn in the chair. The thought of total failure and complete hopelessness began to engulf me. I experienced an aloneness that bars description. My only question was how and when would it all end? One morning, shortly after I arrived at work, I was asked to come to a discussion that was in session. The door was closed. I opened it, and there, sitting around a long table, were a doctor, a chaplain, and a good friend from another treatment center, and several members of my family. My case had been tried. The jury had reached a decision, and it was unanimous. I would be going to treatment as soon as arrangements could be made. The location had not yet been determined. Someone would pay dearly for this, I decided. The nerve coming to the place I worked and humiliating me. Today was their day, but rest assured I would have mine. I was seething inside, but my sick, mixed-up mind could not come up with anything to counter what was taking place. I went back to my office, picked up my hat and coat, and was driven home by the chaplain. Two days later, I was on a plane heading for treatment. Three times I went to treatment. Just prior to the last admission, I believed that death would be more fair than life, and had it not been for another friend, I would probably have found out. I came to in a hospital emergency room. My friend later told me I had called him in the middle of the night, begging him to come. I recall nothing prior to awakening in the emergency room. A return to treatment followed, but this time it was different. Through taping my sessions with the therapist, I was to learn how all my defects, unchecked, 
had led to the relapse. On a three-day weekend, I was assigned the task of listening to the six hours of tapes. I could not believe what I heard. I felt ashamed, embarrassed, beaten. This indestructible man had been brought to his knees. I knew I had finally surrendered. I had fully learned, at last, that the unchecked dry drunk had inevitable consequences. In sharing my own story, I hope I can help you head off a similar consequence. Dry drunk symptoms have to be recognized if they are to be checked. I wasn't honest enough to recognize my own. Perhaps I can help you recognize yours. Blaming others for your own suspected shortcomings is an obvious dry drunk trait. The target is often a person close to you, a spouse, a child, a boss, a co-worker. The irony is that blaming others won't bring the desired relief from troublesome feelings. Responsible behavior, nothing less, will relieve the feelings. Another symptom is impatience. I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now. Feeling comfortable in the mainstream of life requires a great deal of patience, and patience will produce many dividends. But this is not an easy trait to develop. Though it is crucial to successful recovery, the danger of impatience is that it leads to frustration, discouragement, dissatisfaction, which may result in a deep sense of insecurity. Anger may also be the response, a feeling you can ill afford for long. This destructive process must not be left unchecked. I am reminded of a friend who became furious when he arrived home one afternoon and found his two sons had failed to mow the lawn before leaving for camp earlier in the day. My friend stormed to the garage, started the mower, made a few passes at the lawn, ignored his neighbor's greeting, and went striding into the house to let his wife know he had good reason to be angry. She was unaffected by his tantrum. When he finished, she calmly asked, what do you have to be grateful for? My friend said he had never before been stopped so dead in his tracks. He returned to mowing the lawn, somewhat embarrassed, but much the wiser. He literally ruined his day by his loss of control. He tried to ruin his wife's day, too. Anger doesn't help any situation. Another trait to be wary of is grandiosity, sometimes referred to as false pride. Do you think too much of yourself, or perhaps too little, but can't admit it? Do you measure up in your own eyes? If not, you had better realize your lack of self-acceptance before it leads you a step closer to relapse. Being unrealistic about your true value is a very dangerous game you may find yourself playing. Close to grandiosity and false pride is dishonesty. When you were drinking, lying was probably a way of life. 
You lied about how much you drank and why, how much you spent and why, where you were and why. Probably in sobriety you have tried very hard to be rigorously honest, but do you, on occasion, shade the truth, particularly when it comes to risking your feelings? One lie leads easily to another. The danger is that every lie, no matter the nature, is a step further into a dry drunk. Lying when drinking only led to more drinking. Lying when sober may lead to a return to drinking. Remember the axiom, the truth will set you free. Personal freedom is what recovery is all about, and there is no freedom if dishonesty is a crutch you lean on from time to time. Along with all the characteristics already outlined, a feeling of self-importance is also an indication of a dry drunk. You will get positive attention from others, particularly family and friends, when you sober up. The attention itself is not bad, but what you do with it may hinder your sobriety. My personal story is as good an example as I can give of the pitfalls of not accepting and handling praise in a healthy way. Sobriety is our ticket to rejoin the human race. Feeling you are above the herd or below it is the wrong admission price. Depression is another red flag of the dry drunk. You may be physically sober, but experiencing little enthusiasm for living. Withdrawal and inaction, including missing AA meetings and functions, are common symptoms. And sobriety is jeopardized. It is absolutely necessary that you do something rather than sit preoccupied with depression. Talk to your sponsor. Go to an AA meeting. Go for a walk, bake cookies, hit a golf or tennis ball, call a friend who has been sober for a while. He or she can assure you that this too shall pass. Nothing is forever. The opposite of depression, euphoria, also can be a trouble sign. If you think everything is going my way, watch out. There's nothing wrong with feeling good, but euphoria is, can be dangerous. An unexpected raise in salary, a 30-foot putt, a home of your own, a shiny new car are all fine. But if you begin to think nothing will or can spoil all of this, you are headed for a crash. Euphoria is an impractical way of life and relapses occur when it becomes sought after. You must settle gratefully for a moment or two of it from time to time. Evidence suggests more alcoholics return to drinking because things are going too well than because the struggle is too great. This is a grim warning indeed if you are riding high with your feet firmly planted in midair. Something else that contributes in great measure to the dry drunk is boredom, particularly boredom as it relates to AA and AA attendance. 
The familiar refrain is, I've heard it all a hundred times, or it's just going to be another replay. It's like a broken record, so I am going to start doing a few other things. Get a little more enjoyment out of life. Many alcoholics now wish they had never made that decision. Don't be one of them. It is a sure way of starting down the road to trouble. When you con yourself into believing AA can be dispensed with, you are in trouble. There is no substitute for AA and the recovery process. This does not mean sporadic attendance, but attendance on a regular schedule. This is your prescription for recovery from your illness. I quit filling my prescription. You know the result. Don't let my story become your story. Today, life has meaning and purpose, not too different from how I felt in the early years of sobriety over 25 years ago. From treatment, I went back to AA and found that nothing had changed. I was accepted as AA accepts everyone who comes. The formula that worked so effectively in my first attempt at recovery hasn't changed. It still works. The rewards of the earlier years of sobriety are just as real now as they were then. Once again, there is life. There are things to do. There are friends. There is AA. There is peace. My priorities are in order. The horrible nightmare is over. The reason for telling my story is to demonstrate that success in life is no protection against a dry drunk that can lead all the way to the first drink. In fact, Protection against the dry drunk that may lead to a relapse is always available. Look for your trouble signs. Listen to others. The choice is yours. Assistance to members of families troubled by behaviors resulting from any phase of the dependent person's disease is readily available in most parts of the country. As I have emphasized, getting sober or straight, is only the first step. A successful recovery is dependent on checking behaviors that pave the way to relapse. But family members or friends must be willing to risk whatever the repercussions in requesting help. Al-Anon and al can always provide enlightened guidance. Generally, the best first step for the concerned person is simply to discover or rediscover that others have experienced similar frustrations and that help is available. Another source of help may be the family program of a treatment center near you. Information about these programs can be obtained by calling Alcoholics Anonymous in your area. Counselors, therapists, physicians, and clergy Enlightened about alcoholism and chemical dependency can also provide valuable assistance. Employee assistance programs can be an excellent resource for both you and the person you're concerned about. Professional, confidential guidance and referral are the hallmarks of employee assistance.
The main thrust of this brief postscript is to emphasize that inaction or impulsive reaction on your part as a concerned person is just as irresponsible as the behavior you can't ignore in your spouse, relative, or friend. All persons touched by any phase of the dependency cycle have an obligation to themselves to behave responsibly. Are you prepared to do so? It is not always an easy path to travel. What follows is directed to alcoholics who are sober, but who are suffering time to time from a consuming discomfort known as dry drunk. One of the first things we alcoholics are told when our decision is made to stop drinking is that if we are going to maintain sobriety, we have to work at it. Sobriety can be forever, and it has been for many. I leave you with this important reminder. Sobriety has been forever for many. Let it be the same for you. Don't let yourself become a victim of the unchecked dry drunk. And as I listened to Dick talk about his own experience, um, I realized that, that I had some parallels in my own life uh, that I had found times, there had been times when I had had that complacent attitude that I didn't really need the program, that I was doing just fine. Um, and then on Friday, the last Friday, I had an experience at work, which really uh, woke me up, I guess, uh, and showed me that, in fact, some of these uh, dry drunk symptoms were, were actually happening in my life right now. So why don't I start with that? I uh, was sitting at my desk Friday morning, and a coworker came over and said, Hey, Spencer, can we go uh, into the conference room to talk about something? And I thought, Sure. You know, didn't want to disturb the uh, the people at the adjacent desks, and uh, so we went into the conference room and closed the door. and And she pointed out that in a meeting a few days ago, I had well, the word she used, I think, was yelled. Um, I don't remember something something like that. Anyway, and I had to admit that that was true. Uh, I did have that memory of having done that. And then I was at least able to pull up some of the tools of, of my program and say, you know, I need to sort of think for a minute about where I was when that happened, what was going on in my head. And as I thought, uh, you know, I recognized that there had been a number of factors already going on in my life um, that might predispose me towards uh, poor reaction um, in the face of uh, maybe some sort of challenge. I was not feeling well and been sort of living with a low-grade cold all week that was not bad enough to stay home, 
but definitely uh, had an effect on my mood, um, on my feeling of wellness, on my um, alertness, on, on my energy. There's the, ener- the word I'm looking for, energy. Uh, so we could say that, that I, was, I was definitely tired uh, and sick. And the topic that we were talking about in the meeting uh, was in part a failure of one of the uh, components of our system that I had put a lot of work into recently and had felt was working well. And it was starting to look like that was not true. And so I was feeling defensive. I was feeling perhaps alone because uh, I was here defending this this part of the system that maybe was, was actually not working right, and so it sort of felt like everybody else was against me. And that made me angry. Uh, and so right there I had, I had three components of the HALT uh, quartet. I was angry, I was lonely, I was tired. And so when... The meeting was was fairly chaotic with um, a lot of people trying to talk at once and all put forth their own observations, their own opinion about what was going on. Um, And so I got frustrated, which is perhaps another form of angry. And at at some point, I, I burst into... The conversation um, uh, loudly and forcefully, and I guess we could use the word yelled, and that actually happened a couple times during the meeting. And you know that is not that is not the way that I have been uh, intending and striving to be at work. It is not the person that I want to be. And I had thought that, in fact, over the last year, and my boss agreed with me during my performance review in December, that, in fact, uh, that aspect of my interaction with other people at work had actually improved um, significantly. So what, what was happening here? So that was, that, was part, that was another part. And then on Saturday morning, the next day, um, coincidentally, maybe, uh, I, I was going to my Saturday morning meeting, which is a step meeting. And that morning we were looking at step three and we read the description of step three from the book paths to recovery. And this sentence in, in that description jumped out at me as we grow in the program, we find ourselves returning again and again to these basic principles when faced with new challenges. And I realized at that, at that point, I realized that I had been sort of coasting in my program. I had been missing some meetings, but more importantly, and directly related to step three, um, I had sort of given up on, lapsed on, if you will, uh, my daily, uh, 
practice of prayer and meditation. I had been feeling, uh, I think, complacent uh, that I didn't really need it or that, well, it's, it's okay to skip it today. I'm, I'm really busy. I'm rushed this morning and I'll do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow I would be really busy and rushed and well, okay, I, I, I can skip it today. And I started to see in my head um, the similarities between this behavior and the the dry drunk behavior that Dick S. talked about. Um, and so I wondered, well, is there such a thing as dry Al-Anon? And if so, well, I think I am one right now. So that... That was what happened. Um, oh, and, and also in the Saturday morning meeting, uh, somebody else talked about um, sort of, you know, letting go of her higher power, letting go of the practice of, of turning things over, of asking to understand um, God's will, and found that she was sort of white-knuckling her own recovery. And again, that, that phrase really connects to one at least some of the descriptions that I've heard of of dry drunk as well. We're really trying to do it on our own. We're not um, letting our higher power help us. We're not letting our higher power guide us, and 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 you know grabbing on and trying to force things to go our way. So. So how do I uh, how do I get out of this dry Al-Anon? What do I do? And I think actually on on Friday Friday was a good day because well partly I think because I finally on Thursday decided I need, needed to take the day off work. I needed a day of rest uh, to deal with this uh, this cold and you know it wasn't really a whole lot worse on Thursday but just a little bit and enough to say, I don't want to impose my snuffly self on my coworkers and I need, I need the rest. I need to take care of myself today. And so I did. And, and I came back to work on Friday. Not only did I come back to work on Friday with a different attitude, but I think also the time off, the time away from the problem had given um, my brain time to sort of work on it. And I came back with a couple of new ideas about how to, um, understand better what was happening in this problem we were seeing. And I spent the day Friday collaborating with um, a colleague in another department uh, to look at the same problem from, from his angle and from my angle at the same time on the same set of data. And we made some significant progress, and it turned out that, in fact, uh, the the project that I had been working on, the project that I thought we had proven worked correctly, uh, was not always working correctly uh, when we let it out into into the wild, wild world, if you will. The wild, wild, wide web something. Anyway, yeah. Um, and I was able to approach that conclusion without feeling defensive, by, with with acceptance of reality. And I could already see that 
the program was was working here for me and and I think just getting out of that h a l t hungry angry lonely tired state by uh, by resting on Thursday had helped there because I hadn't really recognized the uh, the dry alanon at that point um, and so at the end of the day on Friday, I wrote up a memo to um, the uh, the appropriate set of uh, managers and my boss uh, laying out what we had found in I think very straightforward terms, uh, without without being defensive, just saying this is this is what we found, this is what we see happening, and here are a couple of ways that we see we can go forward from here um, to resolve uh, in some way the problem, uh, to make sure that it won't happen in the future, and to perhaps uh, fix uh, some of the. The stuff in the past that was hanging over, uh, we'll see. Uh, just had those ideas with some colleagues on Friday and, and put them out there. But it felt, you know, it was a really sort of a, a step 10 kind of a, uh, an email, uh, along with some, uh, you know, probably some inventory there, that uh, this is what it is, um, this is what happened, this is what's happening, this is what our current understanding is, very straightforward. Uh, and that felt good. You know, that felt good. I was able to go home at the end of the day feeling like um, I was in a much better place than I had been on Wednesday, certainly. And so part of the solution was the fact that with over a decade of Al-Anon recovery, I was able to use at least some of the tools and apply them to that problem once I had taken care of myself. And... The second thing was uh, the Saturday morning uh, step three meeting where I recognized, realized that I was not, I was not practicing conscious contact with my, with my higher power. I was not uh, giving my will and my life over to the care of my higher power. I was, I had taken it back with a vengeance and I was trying to run it. I was trying to make things turn out the way I wanted them to turn out. And, you know, they weren't turning out that way. And, and, I, and I can't fall back on myself when things are not turning out the way I want them to turn out. You know, I need something higher, more powerful than myself to, to help me through that. And so the second, sort of the second prong of getting out of my, my dry Al-Anon here is um, to revive uh, my daily prayer and meditation. And so uh, for the last two days, I've... I've managed to do that to some extent. Um, today I'm still, uh, I guess it's it's Monday morning now and I'm still needing uh, the meditation part um, of that practice. And we'll see. We'll see how, how this comes out. And in eight weeks, my Saturday morning meeting, we'll be talking about step 11. And I will, I want to be in a place where I don't have to say, well... Not exactly practicing my daily prayer and meditation very well. I want to be in a place where I can say, yes, um, this is something I'm doing. This is something that is part of my life, part of my routine. I need to make things part of my routine if they're going to get done on a, on a daily basis. And that this has helped that, you know, I hope to, to be in a place where I'm not yelling at people in meetings, no matter how. Uh, frustrated and alone and defensive, I find myself, uh, and I believe that with the 
with the care and support of my higher power, I can be that person. Because I've managed to be that person in the past, and and so this, you know, this was a this was a good experience. I didn't have to go to a sort of a full blown relapse, all uh, in whatever that means in Al-Anon, uh, and to recognize that that as an Al-Anon, I can experience the same sort of the same emotional and spiritual state that matches what uh, Dick S described as as dry drunk. So I'm curious to understand, to hear your experiences with dry drunk in your life, whether you're a member of uh, the Al-Anon Fellowship or find yourself uh, maybe identifying with the Al-Anon Fellowship or whether, um, you know, you're in one of the other fellowships as well and have experienced it uh, as dry drunk uh, related to substance rather than just uh, behavior. I was talking with a couple of uh, friends uh, who are in both programs uh, last night after our, our Al-Anon meeting. And, uh, you know, we agreed that the uh, the dry drunk is really more in your head than it is about, um, you know, the substance or whatever it is that that might have brought you to that place in the first place. So what do you think? Do you think that's a true statement? Uh, have you experienced dry Al-Anon syndrome? Uh, let us know. And and how do you do that? Well, you can call us and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Uh, if you uh, are perhaps overseas and that would be an expensive phone call, you can use the voicemail button on your computer. In any case, you could use the voicemail button on your computer and also uh, leave us a voice message. And if you don't want to use your voice, uh you can uh, send email to feedback at the recovery and, uh, and share your experience, which uh, I can then share uh, back uh, other people's experience back in a, in a future episode. So I'm, I'm doing this episode a little bit differently than, uh, than usual, uh, partly because, uh, you know, the structure is different, uh, starting with that, uh, that open talk. And uh, so I want to go straight into talking about, uh, my life in recovery this week, which really, um, I think I've covered a lot of it already. Um, there's not a whole lot more to say about the week. I did want to uh, to talk about an experience I had at a meeting last night where uh, um, a person came in who hadn't been to the meeting in a while, uh, looking a little rugged, I think is, is a word I might say. And not quite, um, not quite present in life. And when the, uh, when the meeting opened, um, this person spoke up and uh, talked about the death of a friend from an overdose that had, I think the friend overdosed on Thursday. I don't remember the exact timeline and, and the person wasn't completely clear on the timeline as well. The friend overdosed, I think on Thursday and was in the hospital in a coma uh, and uh, and died Friday night. And, uh, you know, th- this person was really, really struggling because his friend had several years in recovery, uh, was about to get married, uh, and, you know, seemingly had everything going right in her life and everything to look forward to. And, and 
it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that, that she would, um, you know, OD and that she would take anything like that. And so, you know, when this happens in our life, we always have these unanswerable questions, the, the, the why, why did this happen? Why did this person do this? I don't understand. And, and I think also, uh, there's fear that, well, if that happened to, you know, this person, maybe it could happen to me. Maybe I could suddenly find myself in a place, um, and not reaching out for help. And, and I think that connects back a little bit to, um, you know, let's talk about dry drunk because one of the symptoms that I see, uh, that I saw in, in Dick's talk, um, and that I saw in myself is, is not reaching out. I can handle it myself. Um, and we don't know, we, we will probably never know what, what happened in this person's life to, uh, to bring them to that point. Um, and as we shared around the table, uh, each of us had some experience with loss and death in our lives, some through this disease and some um, maybe from, you know, from cancer, from, from an accident, whatever it might be. Um, and we all just shared where we had been, how we had felt, and how how we were dealing. And you know, one woman uh, talked about the loss of of her mother um, forty five years ago, and how she still feels feels that loss from time to time. That uh, uh, you know, the grief lessons. It becomes something we can live with, but it's, it's for many of us, it's never gone completely. And there are still times when, when it, when it pops up and, you know, this is the power, this is the power of the program that we didn't have, we didn't have any way to make it right for this person who was struggling with, with the death of their friend. We didn't have any way to make it right, um, but we could make it. We could make it clear that they were not alone, um, and that we had experienced. Some of us, at least, had experienced the same thing in our lives, and that we were, we were okay, and that perhaps in the fullness of time that this person would be okay too. And that, um, you know, coming to a meeting and this person said, you know, I was on my way to somewhere else. I wasn't planning to come to this meeting, but I looked at the clock and I thought, no, you know what? I'm going to go to a meeting right now because there we were. And, and how wonderful it is to be able to reach out and to have a place where we can come and be honest about what we're feeling right now, about our anger at our friend for dying. Um, you know, how many places can you do that and just be accepted? How many places you, can you do that and not be told, oh, don't feel that way? Because that's not what we said. That was not our experience. And, 
You know, I am so grateful. I am so grateful that I have the tools of this program. I'm so grateful that I have the people in this program so that when something like that happens in my life, I will know where to go and I will know who I can talk to. Well, that's, that's what I have today. Next week, I hope to be discussing uh, concept three, the third concept of service uh, with Akila. And uh, concept three is, says, the right of decision makes effective leadership possible. Well, what do you think that means? Why don't you call us or uh, send us an email with, with your thoughts about what the right of decision is and how it makes leadership possible in your life, maybe in your family, in your workplace, and in your al meetings. Um, love to hear from you. Again, 734-707-8795. Use the voicemail button on the website at therecoveryshow.com or send us email to feedback at therecoveryshow.com. I want to thank Jessica again for uh, her generous donation uh, in support of The Recovery Show. She used the donation button on the website, and thank you for that. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. Mm-hmm.